AVXL episode 152 was recorded on September 2nd, 2021. We got CD announcements from Sony, Samsung, JVC, and more. BMW has updated their flagship 800 series. ATSC 3.0, we got updates. An affordable amp for Justin's garage. What is a Harman curve? And so much more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you that supports Robert and I at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. Cedia, we have some announcements. So I am not at Cedia. Cedia is kind of a, a skeleton of a skeleton. It started out as a skeleton. Now it's a, a well-picked skeleton. I don't mean to be cruel when I say that, but uh, I think it's down to around 100 vendors. Uh, Axpona, we've told you, was canceled. Uh, Rocky Mountain Audio Fest has canceled oh. um, RMAF uh, and in a way that makes it sound like they're done. So we'll see whether or not Can Jam happens at the end of September. It has not been a great fall for shows. <laughs> you know, he said, I think it is better for hopefully the web presence, you could say, of these companies and making sure that their product information is up to date or mm-hmm. hosting live or virtual events. Which segues us right into Sony's CI Live virtual event, which is essentially their flagship AV gear for 2021. Totally. It's actually happening as we speak. The cool thing about it is, just like you said, it's really just highlighting the very best they have in all of their display technologies. Things like AV receivers, speakers, amps, and of course their awesome projectors, which I, I drool over every time I look at one. They look so good, even right out of the box. <laughs> I have to say the highlight, though, if you look through their product categories, uh, one, their top projector, the GTZ380 Laser Projector 4K HDR 10,000 lumens using a dual laser system with red and blue, plus an extra blue firing into the phosphor to give you the green. They're claiming superb DCI color. This is using their Arc F lens, which I did not know stood for all range crisp focus. I thought it had some crazy scientific acronym thing going on there, but no. Arc F is just a, it's an all glass design and it's glorious. I think it has like 18 elements. Uh, And they have several additional lens options for you. If you would like to say do a shorter throw or something even a little longer, they had a very pricey lens options, I should say. And this 4k capable HDMI, everything projector could be yours for a cool $80,000 right up there. I'll take two. I'm telling you (laughs) lustworthy. And in a little bit, I'll talk about some of the uh, latest in ATSC doings, and it includes some good news for Sony products as well. But this, I think it was just a great highlight of some of the very best things. They even had some of their crystal LED displays, the literal LED video wall technology that could be used more for commercial designs really than home. But still, they were there touting that tech as well. But for me, it was really just that projector technology. Holy cow. I mean, they already make some of the very best TVs. We talked about their flagship LCD last week. Nice to see the projector lineup. Speaking of something perhaps a little more affordable and something we've talked about before (laughs) from the good folks at Hisense, they have a Trichroma L9G laser TV. It's a short throw design. 
It is Mm -hmm. now available. It is shipping. You can go to a website and actually click on a buy link. This is a true RGB laser design. This has red, blue, and green diodes in it. A short throw design, like I mentioned, and it comes bundled with either a 100-inch or a 120-inch ambient light rejecting screen. Now, on the 100-inch version of this projector, quote-unquote, the laser TV, you can get a choice of either the more standard, I think, for dark rooms, a 0.4 gain ambient light rejecting screen, or they had an option for a 1.2 gain, what they're calling the daylight gain screen. Price point, $5,500, which is pretty good for getting a combo package like this with a true RGB laser design. I can all but guarantee that it is not going to look as good as something like, say, the GTZ 380 from Sony right out of the box. But this is a pretty damn good value. If I have one complaint, though, about projectors like these, and this would include something like Samsung's Premier LSP9 4K laser short throw, that is also Mm -hmm. an RGB laser projector, is how well are the calibration controls or how good do they work? If they're not there and you can't dial that incredible color palette in, it's almost like, again, I think I've said before, it's like having a hot rod without, without a steering wheel, in a sense. It's like, great, I have this incredible color palette surpassing Rec 2020 by quite a bit. And still, though, without the control there or a way to calibrate it properly, it's not as impressive as it could be. And I'm really hoping this year they've stepped that up. And I can't wait to actually see one in the lab for some testing, so to speak. But at that price point, damn, with the screen included... I forget if the price is different for the 120 inch, but in the case of the 120 inch, you only get the choice of the 0.4 gain screen, not the, uh, there is no 1.2 daylight screen option for that, apparently. Hmm. And continuing on my laser projector fest here, JVC has also introduced a trio of brand new laser projectors. These are 8K e-shift projectors using a 4K imager that has been upgraded to provide 8K-like resolution. The main features on these projectors will be that they all feature the world's first projectors to offer quote-unquote 48 gigabit 8K input. That means you can do up to 8K 60 or 4K 120, and they're borrowing from the high-end blue laser design they were using in the previous flagship JVC projector. Coming to this trio, which includes the NZ9, the NZ8, and the NZ7 arriving this October, In the case of the NZ9, that would be the flagship $25,000 projector available in black. That actually is going to incorporate a dual laser system with a red and a blue laser diode for even improved color quality. The NZ9 will feature up to 3,000 lumens. The others drift down just a little bit off that spec to save some of the money. And of course, the NZ9 is also going to have the 100 millimeter optic The beautiful glass right up front, whereas the others will be using, I believe, 65 millimeter or smaller. One of my favorite things about JVC has been their adoption of a dynamic tone mapping system. This uh, takes any of your HDR content, your typically HDR10 content that is not Dolby Vision-like in terms of having a dynamic tone mapping system. This just looks at that content and creates something very similar to that. I think that's just going to make it easier for you to integrate both your SDR and your HDR content into something that looks this good. Granted, pricing is a little up there, but these are the premium projectors of their type. They offer literally the best-in-class contrast performance. In particular, if you have a light-controlled room, this is kind of what you want. A projector that can do the best black. And the NZ9 is coming in, and I said 25000 the NZ8 at a cool 15K, and the NZ7 at a svelte 10K this October. And I am really, really looking forward to it. 
It's funny. I wanted to bring up uh, one of the companies we usually see at CD is, is Digital Projection, who are an extremely high-end projector company. And they bring that up uh, because they do things like, I want to say, 15,000 lumen projectors. When you absolutely positively have a giant home theater that needs all of the brightness. Here we go, 9,500 lumens, 7,000 lumens, 13,500 lumens, and those aren't even the brightest projectors they have. I bring that up because uh, James, uh, a.k.a. at Superman50,000, tweeted, what projector can do close to, if not exactly, 1,000 nits and has OLED black levels, and what type of projector is it? LED, laser, etc." And I want to point out that JVC's pretty much making, you know, you can argue, argue JVC versus Sony, but JVC, I think at this point, kind of has the lead uh, depending on how these projectors measure in the field in terms of performance. Contrast in particular. Yeah, the delivering the contrast uh, that you would need to get anywhere even close to uh, Dolby Vision, or, or in this case, they do HDR 10 plus support. But a thousand nits, you know, I was looking at a chart. Uh, you know, that Sony projector at 10,000 lumens would right. get you there. It would probably be closer than yeah. a, just about anything. You would have to spend even more than the 80 grand it would be for a projector like that. And you could yeah, easily you... double that or more. Or stack a couple of high-end projectors together and create as mm -hmm. bright of a picture as you want. But if you're looking for those superb black levels, that, again, is really where I think JVC just shines. Right. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you're, you're talking about for a 100-inch screen, um, you're probably looking at, you know, I, I think the chart I was looking at had 6,200 lumens on a 100-inch screen to get to 600 nits. So you're probably looking somewhere upward of 10,000 lumens coming out of the projector, or as Robert pointed out, stacking projectors. And that's a precarious thing to do if you're trying to... Uh, uh, have OLED style blacks. I mean, the short answer is you can do it, but prepare to spend uh, somewhere between the cost of a decent car and or a decent house, depending on where you're located and what kind of car you're shopping for, um, and still probably being a little bit disappointed with the black levels compared to an OLED. Keep in mind how large these high lumen projectors can be as well. I, I, yeah. be I believe that Sony GTZ 380 is about 125 pounds. It's a significant box <laughs> to deal with. Yeah. It's doing what it does in a well-constructed cabinet, but it's not exactly portable. Nor is yeah. it intended to be. That's really for a dedicated large-scale system or specialized displaying like for events or art or what have you. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know, the, the Epson 5050 UB I'm running at home is a vast improvement over my previous projector. It is not, the black levels are not as good as JVC's previous generation, much less these new ones. But it also costs, you know, less than half or probably a quarter of what some of these new projectors are going to cost. So, James, I mean, you know, on one hand, what you want doesn't exactly exist. Uh, and if it does, you're going to be paying staggering amounts of money for it and probably uh, doing a lot of work on a room uh, and, and having the electrical to power the kind of projector you're looking for on that one. Your best value might actually be an 83-inch OLED screen, if that's a big enough screen for you. <laughs> it's not a projector, yeah. but it's a crazy... It would give you the black levels and close to a 1,000 nits of light output. I'm going to stick with my 100-inch screen. There you <laughs> In go. In a few more years, another projector.
Uh, BMW announced an upgrade to their 800 series, their flagship, their diamond series. Um, seven new models, beginning with the 805D4 stand mount speaker. Uh, they got a series of three-way floor standing models, uh, the 804D4, 803D4, 802D4. Um, I want to say the 804D4 is the flagship of the fleet. Um, it's interesting. So they have a, a new cast aluminum top section replacing wood and they're trying to uh, improve stiffness and uh, and you know eliminate resonances or vibrations off the cabinet uh and uh, i have this note here in the show notes and because flagship quote finished in leather by Connolly and black for dark cabinets and light gray for lighter finishes uh, I, i'm always a sucker for a leather covered high-end speaker. Um, these are using that reverse wrap cabinet design where it's sort of fatter in the front and more narrow in the back. Uh, that's been around since 2015 on their lineup on the larger speakers. And the idea is that uh, they're reducing the baffle and they're increasing the rigidity of the speaker as a system. That's their goal there. Uh, it's kind of crazy. The uh, crossovers are mounted in dedicated spaces in the back of each speaker. Um, it's... Uh, some interesting uh, design uh, choices. The 804 D4, their big flagship speakers, has a downward firing port. And uh, the continuum cone and the flex suspension transducer, which is their fancy name for their mid and base driver uh, designs, are joined by the biomimetic suspension. So instead of a fabric spider uh, around the motor at the base of the speaker, uh, they have, uh, think thin spider legs, the idea that they're, they're moving less air behind the speaker and thus improving, uh, its response. Um, they've isolated the drive units and the motors on quote sprung mounted decoupling mounts, which I could not find a picture of because I'm very curious about that. Um, They've got a new all design for their uh, all aluminum turbine head. That's a sort of teardrop shape enclosure. No, excuse me. The turbine head is the mid-range drive unit, and uh, and they also a solid block of aluminum. Their solid body tweeter, which is now mounted in two locations instead of one, or decoupled from the speaker body in two locations instead of one. Cool. New motor design on the tweeter. Uh, it moves less air behind the tweeter. Uh, and the idea that they were kind of trying to produce the volume uh, or lower the resonant frequency behind the tweeter dome. And apparently there's something like 30 centimeters of uh, tube or channel uh, loading behind that tweeter to help tune that. So I think the last time I heard a set of uh, 800 series speakers was at Cambridge Audio's demo of one of their new turntables. And they're flawless, right? And they should be. The 805D4, the stand mounts, or what I would think of as a bookshelf style speaker. Those are 8,000 a pair. The top of the line flagship 801D4, which is their big floor standing speaker, runs $35,000. Thankfully, per pair. They have center channels available if you're doing a home theater system. Um, you know, if you get a chance to listen to these, it's worth it. Uh, you know, assuming their tuning is consistent, they should be a fantastic listen. Excellent. Getting back to uh, more CD announcements. Uh, Samsung's got some new sizes for its flagship Neo QLED 4K TVs and lifestyle TVs. I like the idea that they have uh, lifestyle TVs. And uh, they've got an update for The Wall uh, the Neo QLED 4K Q9, QN90A uh, is now available in 4350 and 98-inch versions. They've got a new 85-inch uh, uh, version of The Frame. That's their their television that doubles as art, uh, which is massive. Nice. Uh, 
a 65 inch uh, update on the terrace which is their basically watching television in the sun model or their full sun model and uh, the walls now offering an 8k resolution with up to a 120 hertz refresh rate and quote simple 8k playback uh, so the wall which essentially is stacking building blocks together can be configured to over 1000 inches that's big <laughs> that's a six-figure tv right there or display system actually i doubt it's even yeah technically a tv but that's cool. And this being Cedia for the Custom Electronics Design and Installation Association, uh, mm -hmm. having extra sizes like these, be it smaller sizes like 43 inches right. or 98 inches, might be the perfect solution for just squeezing them in. I think you're going to see more and more manufacturers. Anybody who really is producing the most premium panels out there is expanding their sizes just to, you know, fit them in wherever they can. And clearly with the larger sizes, they probably make a bit more money off of those compared to <laughs> some of the more affordable models we're used to. I am a little surprised that the uh, 98 inch, well, I guess they already have a large version of their 8K TV. So having one in 4K with all of the same great features at 98 inches, fantastic. What is that? The size of a queen size bed? Something I don't know. <laughs> about. Thereabouts, anyway. Getting in that neighborhood. Oh, my goodness. What's up with uh, the ATS 3.0 annual meeting? Is there anything we should be excited about or terrified by? I'd say the meeting overall was to be expected. Uh, they seemed rather happy with themselves about announcing that the standard is going forward. There are more stations out there actually broadcasting across the United States. And you can always check the ATSC.org for the deployments of those. Some of the things that I'm most anticipating with the rollout of the standard will be a service related to providing signals for mobile devices, including vehicles or even handhelds eventually. That could offer uh, something really nice just in terms of additional functionality for a quote-unquote free signal that's already being broadcast through the air. As far as TVs incorporating the so-called next-gen tuners, uh, the ATSC 3.0, most premium models, if you look today for 2021, actually do incorporate these tuners. That said, there is no mandate for TV stations to make the switch to the new <laughs> next-gen standard, so they don't seem to be in a hurry. There really are no affordable standalone next-gen TV tuners out there. This latest digital broadcasting standard brings not only your 4K programming, HDR, improved video compression, data services, where really the sky's kind of the limit, especially if you can add in an internet connection to that to make it more two-way and interactive. There's a whole lot that can be done with this, but at least here in the Bay Area, our map showing now shows us as being uh, <laughs> readying broadcast instead of absolutely no update whatsoever, so... <laughs> anyway, it's there. It's, close. It, it's available in some places. It's great as a free thing that people can take advantage of to get right. high quality audio video programming. And it's really those next gen features like the mobile system and some of the data services that could be made available. That's where I'm I'm most excited yet at the same point. Uh, the current over the air tuning system is going to be around for a good long time to come. Uh, I see no sign of that going away quickly <laughs> or with, with any kind of haste. <laughs> There's a whole slew of new Philips Hue products if you're into the uh, remote controllable lighting thing at the top of the line. So they now have uh, an E12 candle bulb if you have chandeliers. And the biggest thing is they actually have the ability to change the color temp on their filament collection, which is their sort of fancy neo-vintage 
light bulb collection. Um, they've got a new gradient light tube that's supposed to uh, sit above or below your TV. That's not going to be around until early 2022, but the idea is that it's going to be able to do ambient lighting for your system. They've added uh, gradient technology or essentially the ability to put on a light show to their, uh, I want to call them the sign, S-I-G-N-E, gradient floor and table laps. You know, so that when they say gradient, uh, they're displaying multiple colors at once. And part of that is because they did a partnership with Spotify so they can throw out a light show uh, well with your music if you're uh, into that lifestyle. They have a uh, TV-focused light strip, the Hue Ambient Gradient Light Strip, which again is going to be able to do uh, color responses to what's going on and a whole bunch of other stuff, including some brighter, basic uh, 800, 1100, and 1600 lumen light bulbs in their lineup. Um, have you ever heard of the HDMI sync box? I may have, but when you sent that link, I had to take a look at it just to right. refresh my memory. I was kind of fascinated. So the idea is you'll be able to connect your, uh, well, you can, it exists, right? The Philips Hue Play HDMI sync box. Uh, it's got like four HDMI inputs, so you can run your media devices through it and, uh, quote, have a fast, seamless display of colorful, smart light that responds to and reflects the content you watch or listen to. I'm going to keep an eye open for one of those boxes to play with. They're going to be doing uh, a 120 hertz compatible gaming update to that later this year. Oh, that's uh, 4K, cool. 4K, yeah. Uh, 1440p max for for 120 hertz gaming. Uh, 4K is still going to be 60 hertz. But if you can't buy a GPU, that's probably not a real issue. But uh, a whole bunch of new Hue bulbs out there if you are looking to uh, get your custom lighting on. I think a key advantage to their products is the fact that they are remote controllable. So if it's not exactly, say, the color temperature you wanted in a, in a light fixture, right. you can do it through an app rather than, say, go up manually and switch an overhead light over to one of the three available presets for color temperatures or something <laughs> like that. In the case of the Play HDMI sync box, though, if it, and I'll say this about their entire product line in general, is that it is expensive. Yes, to buy one of the light strips and the sync box itself and the appropriate hardware, you're looking at at least a $600 investment. That's a little crazy. I would look for an alternative. Uh, it works. It looks great. But I'm thinking you could do this yourself. If you're into DIY whatsoever, you could probably right. you could shave some money off that cost if that's just totally out of the question. You look at what LED light strips cost in general, and then you look at the pricing for what Philips right. is charging for an LED light strip. Granted, I'm thinking bulk cable versus or bulk uh, strips versus, you know, something that's Internet enabled, but it's not cheap, but it looks pretty. <laughs> I guess I'm really curious about the, the those play gradient light tubes because I can't decide if those are supposed to be ambient or overwhelming in terms of the color because they're, they're not sitting behind the TV. They're literally sort of below or above the TV and blasting a significant amount of light. So I'll be very, very curious to see what those turn out to uh, be when people have their hands on to review them in the future. We mentioned the Harman curve last week in the context of uh, the launch of the Dan Clark Stealth, their new $4,000 flagship. Uh, and Audio Science Review did a pretty uh, detailed review of those where they basically said it was spot on for the Harman curve target response. And the idea is that, uh, gosh, about... 10 years ago now, Sean Olive and the crew at Harman started uh, blind testing folks to figure out what sound people liked. They started with like a half dozen pair of headphones or half dozen sets of headphones. 
and a small group of listeners. And when they released their 2012 AES paper, uh, quote, the relationship between perception and measurement of headphone sound quality, they followed that up with like another, I think, 17 or 18 papers uh, testing hundreds of headphones with hundreds of listeners around the world. So what it is, the Harman target curve is the idea of an ideal or a, a beloved frequency response, you know, how much bass, mid, treble for a sort of general massive group of listeners. So the idea is that they have come up with this through testing through hundreds of listeners and hundreds of headphones. They've, they've come up with sort of an average headphone that pleases everybody. So then you can turn around and measure a headphone you're designing and see how it compares or how it matches up with the Harman curve. The Harman curve is supposed to give you sort of the feel of listening to a good set of speakers in a decent or a, or or a acoustically treated room or acoustically thoughtful room. So there's a little bit of a boost, right? Because speakers get a little bit of bump when they're up against the wall and uh, they balance it out with a little extra treble. And it's not sort of a, a full-on V-shaped headphone. It's not a party headphone where there's like all of the bass and all of the treble. It's also not what a lot of people consider an audiophile headphone where there's a, a natural amount of treble on it. It might have a little more bass than I prefer, but if you like bass and bass that is not wompy or bloaty or that overwhelms the mids, it's a pretty interesting tuning for a headphone. It's a little bit more bass than uh, Dan Clark has traditionally done. So if you're looking for a pair of, or to sort of have that experience, the idea of this sort of scientifically tuned headphone, um, the uh, AKG 71, AKG being one of the companies that's owned by the, the Samsung, which owns the Harman Group, uh, is probably the closest match if you don't have $4,000. Um, the street price on the AKG 3K371s is about 150 bucks. Nice. So Harman International, which was purchased by Samsung a few years ago, they own AKG, JBL, HK, Infinity, Lexicon, Mark Levinson, and Ravel. We've talked about Ravel speakers over the years, and they still have Harman's uh, research group. This is an interesting experience, right? They're a little plasticky, but I like the design. Uh, very soft, very large ear cups. Uh, not ridiculously large, but large enough to fit over my ears comfortably. 50 millimeter titanium codum diaphragms. They can sort of fold around to be more uh, friendly. They have a removable cable. They come with two cables, one sort of bungee cable, one more straight cable. And uh, or at least it felt like that when I looked at them before. Very now nice. I'm looking at it, it seems like there's a long cable and a short cable. It's a good tuning. There's not an overwhelming amount of treble. Everything was fairly distinct. With some music, I felt like there was just the near side of too much bass. If you hate bass, you will not like these headphones. If you like bass, you probably will like these headphones or headphones that are tuned like this. That's probably the shortest, simplest kind of introduction to uh, the tuning I can give. I find that fascinating. It's that... Yeah. They've done enough research with enough ears to come up with uh, literally an EQ in a sense, uh, molded or made into the headphone itself. Here's the right. sound of this headphone. And we found that most people prefer a little boost in the bass and the treble. That to me is fascinating. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Is it accurate to say that it is not the most accurate representation of the original recording? It's a little juiced up in a sense, but that's what people prefer. And it's where to actually target your efforts if you are trying to make a popular headphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, two thoughts right here. One is is uh, Brent Butterworth says it is uh, fairly close to the Sony MDR 7506. Oh. Uh, that they have very similar curves. And, and when I say 
you know, I like uh, that curve up in the base. The over ears, they're up maybe five dB between inaudible, you know, 20 and 50 hertz. Um, a little boom. Yeah, there's a, a little bump. So it's, you know, 5 dB is, is an audible difference, but it's not a sweet Jesus right. heads inside the, you know, a Galleon Kruger base cabinet um, attached to Mike Watt's base levels. It's a bump. It's not a huge bump. They have slightly different tunings for inner, in-ears versus over-ears. The in-ears get a little bit more bass uh, than the over-ears, uh, which I think has more to do with human anatomy than anything else. But... Uh, you know, they, they have sort of the classic head-related transfer function curve where there's a, a fairly healthy bump between 1,000 and 5,000 hertz. And that makes up for, uh, you know, kind of what would normally happen if these sounds were out in the room instead of being strapped directly to your ears. So I'm going to be listening to these a bunch over the next couple of weeks and playing around with these versus, uh, you know, the Aeons and the Sony MDR7506s. We'll talk a little bit more about them. But I just did want to... Uh, follow up on that from last week i find it fascinating that companies like samsung on the display side do something very similar mm -hmm. in terms of polling people just to get their gut feeling as to what looks better in well, terms of a picture preset right every default picture preset on a tv that general standard mode it usually defaults to is something that pulls very well among viewers it gives a little extra punch to everything a little extra sharpness a little extra contrast enhancement maybe and it may not be true to the artist's <laughs> work, but at the same point, it's not crazy and going about something yeah. like a vivid setting. They definitely do pull people. And that became an issue with some HDR presentations as well. Right. Specifically on Samsung TVs, where by default, you weren't even getting the most accurate picture possible, even with some of the presets available on that TV. They were all kind of boosting it no matter what you did. Right. I guess it's a little different, though, with headphones. I assume there's less electronics involved, at least in terms of what you're hearing. It's more of the actual, uh, well, it's probably a little bit of everything. It's a lot design. I get that in terms of yeah. speaker placement and it the is, size of the cup and the shape of the cup. And, and the materials oh, in the cup exactly. and the materials that are in front of the cup and the materials in the ear pad. I mean, I will point out one that's I'm holding these and realizing they're not nearly as plastic as I think they are. The Halo's sort of a leather-covered plastic. Uh, they're actually a fairly robust uh, ear cup. Probably it almost feels like aluminum, which I'm sure will turn out to be plastic when I start scratching it. Cool. The AKG371 has a very distinct tuning, but unfortunately the Bluetooth version of it does not match the 371 uh, for reasons that uh, I don't know if anybody's actually sussed out yet. Um, I will say they feel really good in the hand. I don't want to say they sound cheap. Or they feel cheap They're, when I say plasticky, but they are an interesting headphone. I'm going to spend some more time with them. We'll uh, come back on that. It's it's interesting to see somebody try to do this because one of the things I always get a little frustrated with is there is sort of a chain of custody from the camera to the editor to the coloring to the distribution. And it's something, of course, Dolby's worked really hard to do, right, where they can sort of kind of guarantee an experience on all different platforms. But there's a lot of sort of standardized broadcast engineering for video uh, and things get a lot more loosey-goosey uh, especially on the stereo reproduction side of things <laughs> or you know people are are much more uh, salt to taste when it comes to audio reproduction 
Something to think about with that uh, with that Harmon tuning um, I didn't mention earlier is that uh, it is a group consensus. It is a bunch of scientists measuring responses and putting together sort of an idea of, of what is the most appealing headphone sound. Um, you know, uh, I think it's Dan Clark was posted on Audio Science Review as saying uh, uh, or quoting Sean Olive saying that 25% of the people want more bass than is in the Harmon curve and 25% want more treble. So, <laughs> you know, the easiest way to, to, to have a neutral response is to have a neutral speaker in a perfectly tuned room. Um, and if you're lucky enough to have that, well done. Speaking of audio, uh, Justin needs a garage amp. He has uh, a set of Paradigm Monitor 3s that he's had for a fairly healthy amount of time, which I can relate to. So I've got a set of Paradigm uh, SEs um, that I think are about the same age, early 2000s. Mine may actually go to the early 90s now that I think about it. He says they were excellent speakers in a larger dot one setup that has been abandoned in favor of a Sonos Play Bar and two Sonos ones for the rear. He had a, an old Yamaha AV receiver and in storage. He pulled it out and it's dead. And uh, he says, uh, I've heard that powering these speakers can be challenging. And most shops in the area have referred me to their AV receiver section, which is more than I want. I was looking at the NAD3020, but $500 Canadian is a bit pricey for a shop setup. He basically says it's a smaller space and it would be very nice to put a small shelf over the computer as a counter. And, a, and his wall space is limited. He doesn't want a big box. So any suggestions on a small form factor amp to power these speakers? I'm not looking for loud, just reasonable performance. And it's funny, he even emailed Paradigm and they have no idea what the uh, efficiency on these speakers are. <laughs> They're like, we don't know. It's not listed. It's not printed on the back. Um, Connect something and try it. Yeah, and that's a really good idea. So I, I get it, right? The NAD 3020 uh, is a very well-reviewed amp, has a decent amount of power. But 500 bucks for a garage amp, I can I can see where that would be a, little, uh, a bit painful. That's something that's like you Overkill. can find used for 360 with a warranty from an actual dealer or open box. And that's still a lot of money for the garage for a lot of people. So one of the things I've been playing around with lately is a tiny class D amp. It's based on a TITPA 3116 and it's the Lox GA10. It sells for a hundred bucks on Amazon. It's like 70 bucks on Hi-Fi Express. Uh, that's where I bought the one I've been playing with. There's kind of a direct dealer for Lock-G, uh, SMSL, and a bunch of other uh, Chinese audio manufacturers. So they call it a 60-watt amplifier. Uh, Brent Butterworth measured it at 5.1 watts at 1% distortion into 8 ohms or 8 watts into 4 ohms. <laughs> I said the ohms. I don't know if I'm in Boston <laughs> on y'all. Um, but it's like 5 watts into eight ohms or eight watts into four ohms um that's like enough for 88 db at 10 feet for eight ohm speakers it's not going to be block party loud especially if uh, those paradigms aren't particularly uh, efficient but it's probably louder than you're going to want it turned up if you're talking with other people or if you're just kind of working in the garage um the distortion it's giving you're probably not going to hear while you're playing music uh, I had a bigger problem with some noise on this when you know, I hit pause, and I'm I'm super sensitive to noise. It drives me nuts. I was also using this in a desktop setting or a monitor setting on my desk, so the speakers were less than three or four feet from my ears, and uh, I realized that it was like the first 90 degrees of the volume knob was quiet. The next 90 degrees was 
full of static or or had noise and oh. the last 90 degrees of the volume knob was was quiet again so i'm probably going to tear into this thing and start playing around with it uh see if i can eliminate that noisy section or, or replace the uh potentiometer on the volume control but i don't think you would notice that in a garage or if there was a fair amount of background noise that's a pretty good deal for 70 bucks uh, i think uh, brent uh, butterworth also has another recommendation over at the wire cutter that's worth checking out um, again, in that $7,500 range, that's about as cheap as you can get and have something that's not a, a hot mess of an amplifier in terms of being noisy or even more underpowered. Um, I would also say, you know, keep an eye on Craigslist or garage sales or Facebook marketplace, or if there's a local AV store that does used gear, uh, to see if you can find a Denon Morantz Yamaha Onkyo uh, stereo amplifier. Um, they sell for 50 to 100 bucks around here if you can find one, and they'll have more than enough power for your speakers. Uh, you know, it's so much easier to find a used AVR at this point, which is probably the best deal on an amplifier for an entry-level audiophile uh, or for a garage amplifier. But again, if you have a small garage, that's a lot of space to suck up. Right. So good luck, Justin, and let us know how the search goes. I am a fan of the small amp. It's really weird. It's just like triangle-shaped amplifier. Um, it sounds pretty good. It is not a substitute for my 75-pound ATI amplifiers, but it's it's impressive for the money. Sounds perfect for a shop with that shape. Less dust. Yeah. And nobody's going to set anything on top of it. <laughs> Always a plus. No beers on the amplifier, please. Uh, you know, something I meant, to, I meant to mention last week, I am so thankful for active noise cancellation headphones when I'm driving a giant 26-foot diesel Penske truck cross-country. <laughs> I <laughs> hear you. MIDI audiobooks. I ran a, a dB meter uh, off my phone, so it's not the most sophisticated device, but it was there was a surprising similarity in volume and curve to the noise on the jet I flew out on. And I don't know if that's mic limited, but it was amazing. A lot of low frequency noise. Uh, most of the treble got cut off, uh, I guess, by the cabin. Tires can be really loud too on trucks. Yeah, <laughs> can't really can't really argue that. But uh, I, I uh, spent a lot of time with a set of Sony headphones, killing the noise. It's much more relaxing, as I noticed in one four hour section where I'd run out of, I'd forgotten to recharge the headphones and uh, drove for several hours with. Uh, my WH-1000XM3s, and uh, I was much more, I'm, I'm much less exhausted with the noise cancellation than I am if I'm just getting battered by the road noise and the air noise and the engine noise. Good to know. Interesting thought. I like that. Good to know. Me too. We want to thank everybody who's been listening to us. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please search for AVXL on your favorite podcatcher or go over to app, not ask at AVXL. That's the email address. AVXL.com to get all the information on how to subscribe. Um, if you've got a question for us, tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at AVXL, or uh, just email us, ask at AVXL.com. Hashtag ask AVXL works for us. If you want to use a hashtag, let us know what you're doing. And hey, for everybody in California and Oregon who's dealing with the fires, um, Robert, hopefully they're not too close to you at this point. For all of our friends in New Jersey and New York who are dealing with insane flooding, for everybody down in Louisiana, uh, we're thinking of you and we hope everything's drying out or not burning or you can breathe or uh, whatever other madness you're dealing with that it eases soon. It has been a rough, 
rough week around the country. Indeed. With that, ladies and gentlemen, Stout Heart, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.